City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T, the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and the William M. Weiss Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Praveen Kumar, a junior at Hawkins School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. It's January 28th and you're with a virtual youth forum, the first of 2021. I'm happy to introduce today's forum, a conversation about a new era for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court represents the pinnacle of our justice system and has the ultimate responsibility of protecting our constitutional rights. Through his four years in office, former President Donald Trump appointed a record amount of three justices, Justice Neil Gorsuch, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The Supreme Court will have to deliberate over important cases such as Roe v. Wade and other controversial issues. But just how powerful is the Supreme Court? What implications do Supreme Court decisions have on local and state law? It is important to understand the role of the Supreme Court as the highest court in our land. Joining us today to discuss these issues and more are Dr. Hakeem Jefferson. He's an assistant professor of political science and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Comparative Studies of Race and Ethnicity at the Stanford Center for American Democracy and Stanford University. He is also a contributor to 538, a data journalism organization. Jeremy Paris, the former chief counsel of for nominations and oversight for the Senate Judiciary Committee and Dr. Anthony Vanderhorst. He's an associate professor of sociology and criminology at Kent State University. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That is 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at City Club Youth. We'll try to work them in. Here to guide our discussion is Youth Forum Council President Sophia Boyer, a senior at Hathaway Brown School. Sophia, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much also to our panelists for being here. Um, let's get right into the conversation. So as Praveen very helpfully introduced for us, um, this has been a very eventful four years of news, especially within the Supreme Court. Um, can you help us put into context why the Founding Fathers would have set up the Supreme Court so that a death or illness of a single justice would affect and shape the rights and freedoms of Amer average American citizens? Jeremy, you want to take it away? You want to start us off? Uh, right, well, I, yeah, we're, we're looking at each other. This is democracy in action. We're all pointing the finger saying, somebody else uh, uh, start off. Um, well, as, as the only non non doctor on the panel, I will I will start. Um, so, it, you know, the, it has been a long four years. It's been a long month, right? This has been quite a lot of upsetting <clears throat> action about the state of our democracy. One of the sort of tone setting things is is to understand where we are with the federal judiciary, where we are with the Supreme Court, and why it matters for you know our rights, our laws, your lives, uh, and also for what what's going to about to happen with the new administration, the new Congress. Uh, and trying to address the pandemic. The, the Supreme Court is now uh, a, a six to three majority of Republican appointed justices, three of them appointed by Donald Trump, three very conservative justices appointed by Donald Trump. Um, the, the court has been a Republican majority for a long time, uh, but now it is a, a really heavy majority uh, and with some more ideological picks uh, 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 than, than John Roberts, who is the, the chief justice, who's been the, the sort of swing justice before that was Anthony Kennedy, who was more moderate on some issues, not on other issues. It, it always matters what issue. 
Um, and the Supreme Court has, and I, will, I would expand it to the lower federal courts. Uh, Donald Trump also uh, put on the court 234 lower federal court judges uh, that are throughout the country. The Supreme Court, uh, major issues come before the Supreme Court. The hard issues come before the Supreme Court typically. Everything from the right to an abortion to uh, uh, gun regulations in the Second Amendment to the rights for LGBTQ Americans, uh, to the scope of laws to address climate change. All these important issues come through. The, this, the second uh, uh, thing that it, the Supreme Court really has a role, and I'd, I'd love my, my other panelists to, to win this, is shaping our democracy. Some of the most consequential decisions, the Supreme Court decision in 2012 in Shelby County gutting the Voting Rights Act has been incredibly consequential for the right to vote in this wave of vote suppression we've had to contend with. Uh, the Citizens United decision, which opened up a spigot of money in politics, uh, uh, decisions allowing uh, partisan gerrymandering. These things shape how our elections go. They shape who gets it. And then the last bucket of things that I look forward to, and then I'll, I'll, I'll literally turn off the mic, is um, the Biden administration is coming in at a time when they're, they're seeking to address uh, 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 the pandemic, uh, both in terms of the public health issues and the economy, as well as a slate of other issues. The fate of the, the legislation that is passed and the executive orders that we're seeing coming out, ultimately the court will have a big role in deciding whether those things last or not. So you'll see an interplay between the new Biden administration uh, and, and Congress, what it does and what the Supreme Court does or doesn't do. One last forecast, we already saw one of the early executive orders was to put a halt for 100 days to deportations as they try to get their hand around um, uh, uh, undoing some of the Trump administration policies, which are very harsh on immigration and on the borders, in my view, I'm sure others have a different view. Uh, and a, a district court judge in Texas, at the urging of the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, struck that down, said nationwide, cannot do it, put a halt in it. One federal judge, one district court. Now that'll continue to work to the court system, but these things really matter. I look forward to hearing from you and from the other panels today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. If, um, I, if I could just jump in very quickly, I think uh, uh, Jeremy, the expert here on the on the court, raises a lot of a lot of issues that I'm eager uh, to talk about. But I wanted to return just quickly to your original question, which is the power of one justice to to sort of affect the, the bent of the court. And I just wanted to raise attention uh, that's core to thinking about the Supreme Court, right? Uh, the Constitution allows for justices to be removed from public accountability in a way that other members of government are not. And so uh, the federal uh, bench is full of folks who don't have to stand elections. They don't have to worry so much about uh, changes in public opinion or, or the, the sort of pushback or backlash to any given decision. And so that's meant to grant some kind of independence, right, uh, in a way that members of Congress, uh, the president, uh, don't have that kind of independence from, from public opinion and the like. Uh, but then one wonders, and this is the tension that I often talk about with my students when we talk about the court. Uh, there's this tension between that independence and some kind of public accountability that we expect from democracy, right? And so at the various states, there are often elected judges. Uh, and so we know from social science research uh, that elected judges are often more punitive, for example, uh, because they worry about what happens if they were to let a criminal uh, out of jail who then goes off and does something 
something bad. And so th there's this tension, right, uh, between having the sort of independence that members of the court are thought to have uh, and having the kind of public accountability that we expect uh, in democracy. Perhaps one last note, and, and, and then I'll shut up. Uh, but one thing to note is that the Supreme Court, uh, as is, is often taught in, in high school curricula, uh, is not the Supreme Court uh, or the federal judiciary at large that actually functions uh, today. It's quite a political branch of government. And so I think uh, one of the things that I wanted to offer up at the start of the conversation in Jeremy's word to sort of set the tone of where we might go is to not think of the Supreme Court as, as being this organization removed from politics. Uh, the Republican Party in particular, because it lacks a majority uh, to do its bidding in government and its policies are often unpopular, has done a lot of what a friend of mine calls a political venue shopping. And the courts have been uh, a mainstay of that venue shopping uh, kind, of, kind of work. And so re the Republican Party in particular has found a lot of support uh, in the courts uh, for what are otherwise unpopular policies. And so just to sort of reframe the, the conversation a bit uh, from the Supreme Court being this magical black box of judges and black robes who don't have, have politics. Yes, you're you right headed in the conversation I was going to lead us into. There's been a lot of discussion, especially over this last election cycle, election cycle about expanding the Supreme Court and adding accountability, adding term limits. Um, what, Anthony, maybe you could speak to this. What would be the legal justification for such a move? In your opinion, does it set a dangerous precedent for making the court even more political? Should that be something we're aiming for or should we try to depoliticize it? I think it's political, you know, to get back to the original question that you asked, and thanks for having me, by the way, um, it's elections have consequences. And so when when uh, Trump won the election, he had the right when there's a retirement or a death in, in office to appoint uh, these people. But then, you know, it's not just that he appoints them. It has to actually go through Senate confirmation. And so there is a uh, there is a process, a democratic process that goes on. Um, but as far as is expanding the courts. There's a school of thought that felt that that was a that was a shot at the the Supreme Court of listening to anything that the conservatives had to say about election fraud. That if you do this, and I, you know, Schumer had said some things to uh, to Kavanaugh uh, that were pretty harsh. That it we will you know we will remember you and we will come for you. Uh, was sort of a shot across the bow of if you don't comply, we'll stack the courts. And then there was a promise to not stack the courts. And then now they've got a commission together. And some people argue commissions are where ideas go to die. So <laughs> who knows what comes of it? And I think uh, the other part of it is that I, while it is a 6-3 in conservative to, to, to liberal court, I think the jury's still out with the exception of religion on what's really going to happen. I listened to what uh, I listened to, to uh, the Supreme Court when DACA, I mean, not DACA, but ACA came up, the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. And when they were talking about severability, which is a deep topic we won't get into, uh, they ended up ruling that, you know, regardless of the severability issue, that that um, Obamacare got to stand. And, you know, now uh, Biden, I guess, is uh, President Biden is going to um, 
bring back the options in the, the uh, insurance world for people. So I don't know, uh, there was an abortion case that just came down in Texas and they all ruled pretty much that uh, Texas had overstepped its bounds on limiting abortion. So I don't know that it's actually a, uh, as conservative as people think, probably not as conservative as conservatives wish it was. It's not not as moderate as, as uh, you know Democrats would hope that it would be, but there strikes the balance. And when you listen to them adjudicate uh, they really are thoughtful about what they're doing. So, and they want to go with start decisis or what's known as a, you know, precedent that goes on. And so abortion is going to be one that comes up with which they just, they, they just rule, had a minor ruling on. It looks like Jeremy wants to say something. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I really think we're in a, I, I, you know, I, I, I can quibble with you, Anthony, and I, I would love to have that debate about what, uh, uh, you know, the rights of presidents, of course, Merrick Garland, uh, uh, was was nominated for a year by Barack Obama, who saw a year left in his term, and the Republican uh, in the Senate just refused to act on that nomination. Of course, they pushed through Amy Coney Barrett, while Americans, 65 million Americans, had already voted by the time she was up. So, so it really is a project of the Republican Party to 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 sort of as a minority control a branch of government without without a majority rule. And I think the democracy shaping opinions that come down on voting and others warped at it. They can shape democracy to limit who gets to participate. They don't represent the people. There are already so many problems built into this. The the the, the Senate overweights sort of rural and conservative states versus bigger urban states. Democrats represent 40 million more Americans than Republicans in the Senate, yet it's 50-50, the narrowest majorities. But I, I just want to put something else on the table, which is you know, this feels like a, a, I love what you said, Hakeem, about, you know, this, this isn't these, the judges in robes aren't separate from our politics. Right now, we have a crisis of democracy as far as, as far as I'm concerned. There was literally an armed insurrection several weeks ago based on a big lie that the election was stolen. This was not a particularly close presidential election. It was a, a, the, the arguments that 60 courts heard and rejected. Uh, uh, people voted. They voted by mail during a pandemic. Rules that were set in advance by 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 legislatures and courts, there was no evidence of fraud, and yet that big lie led to actual violence and a question of our democracy. So the fact that the Supreme Court didn't go along with it is something I'm heartened by. I think if it was a closer election and there's better some some closer legal arguments, I have I believe they would have gone along with it. Uh, uh, so I I am actually I, I think my urging to everybody watching this is take democracy seriously participate and understand the role of courts. I'm sure we can disagree, Anthony, about some of the things. I'm sure you agree with that. And Akeem, too, that that, that this is this is a moment to sort of refocus on the fundamentals of our democracy and understand where the courts fit into that. So I'm, I'm curious what you think. And, and I and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm pushing back too harsh. Anthony, we, I would love to have that that debate with you. I think we probably agree on more than we disagree. Well, I'd like to, to add, I wish that the Supreme Court would have heard the Texas case. Uh, I understand why they didn't. But I think that it, it it lent itself to people getting very angry that the Supreme, they felt like regardless of what they know is true and what is actually true, and that's for both sides of the aisle, I wish they would have heard the case because it was about what was going on in Pennsylvania. And, it you know, people felt very strongly about Article 2 of the Constitution that uh, once these things are set, that's the way it is. And that once the laws in the state are set, that's the way it's supposed to be. And a lot of people felt like, just in Pennsylvania alone, it was violated. But, but the basic argument was people were able to vote. And so that was problematic yeah. for Texas. I, I told think if people were taking that case would have been problematic. There were no actual evidence of voter fraud. 
before any court throughout the right. country. Their, their argument wasn't about voter fraud. I think that was more uh, President Trump had that attitude. I think the attitude of what was going on in the conservatives from the side that I was reading in their blogs and, and such and so forth was that it, the Constitution wasn't followed. And so are we losing our republic? And so they got very frustrated about that. And if the court would have heard it and, you know, Amy, uh, Justice Barrett, uh, she was so new that I don't know that they wanted to put her through it. And uh, who knows where it would have landed. But I would have liked to have heard what they had to say about it. I think a lot of people do. If I can uh, jump in just quickly here, I uh, I won't go into the weeds of, of the cases on 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 uh, the election. Though I think Jeremy is exactly right here that uh, the Supreme Court and the 60 or so other cases that were brought about the election were attempts uh, to toss out the votes of millions of Americans, especially Americans of color. And it is right for the court uh, to look at such cases and call them as they are. They are lies that ought not be countenanced by the judiciary. And that is what many of the courts uh, decided in reacting uh, to that. And so I think that's a bit of issues. Perhaps we can talk about the Supreme Court's role in this last election. But I, I think Jeremy is taking us to an important place when we think about the court and we think about the crisis of democracy uh, that we're currently facing. Uh, say what one will about Chief Justice Roberts and perhaps uh, his more moderate position taking in recent years. But we will recall that the Chief Justice uh, and conservatives on the court uh, took the teeth away from the Voting Rights Act, uh, which uh, we know uh, after uh, the case, uh, after Shelby, we know that states across the country, particularly states that were once covered uh, by by the Voting Rights Act provisions uh, went to great lengths to make it harder uh, for people to vote. And and this isn't random, right? Uh, the court has consequences, uh, as Jeremy has noted. Uh, when the court says that uh, the, the formula used to decide whether a state uh, fell under the umbrella of the Voting Rights Act jurisdiction, when the court said that that was unconstitutional, even as Congress right, had supported this in large numbers, that meant that millions of Americans, especially low-income Americans, Americans of color, young people uh, like many of us, uh, found it more difficult uh, to participate. And so I, I just want to note that we can get into the weeds of these various things, but the court's decisions have immediate consequences, and they have consequences for democracy. And that's why the court is so important. Well, and there's a good illustrative example of the issue of, of this panel, right, is the interaction between the political branches and, and the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I worked when I was working in the Senate, I, I worked on the nomination of Chief Justice Roberts, and I worked on the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And those things ultimately came into uh, a conflict. Chief Justice Roberts, always disliked the Voting Rights Act from when he was in the Reagan administration. It was, he, he, he is an institutionalist. He's very concerned about the Supreme Court. He really disliked the Voting Rights Act. 
Um, you know, we had uh, 20 hearings in the House and the Senate, 40,000 pages of documents. It was a unanimous reauthorization nearly of the Voting Rights Act based on the congressional fact finding that this was still necessary to protect the rights, particularly people of color to vote. The Supreme Court thought otherwise. Five justices voted and gutted it. And the result was immediate, immediately you had states uh, uh, passing voter ID laws and limitations on voting. And, and we're still living in that wave of vote suppression. I think this, this court has made it very hard for people to vote, not very easy, whatever the frustrations of some of the, 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 the people in Texas is about Pennsylvanians voting. I actually think I watch people wait in line for 12, 13, 14 hours to vote in Georgia. That was not easy to vote. That was hard to vote. So I, I think that our, our democracy has stood, but I think we have work to do. I'd like to add one more thing to this uh, discussion. When I talk to my conservative friends or conservative people around me and they, they talk about this election fraud, I remind them that the first example I ever saw of election fraud that came out of electronics came out of Ohio, where I'm at. And that was Ken Blackwell, who was the uh, uh, secretary of state at the time. And they used Diebold machines and Diebold machines were actually bought by Dominion. And Diebold machines uh, were used according to all the research that had been going on in Ohio to back number votes on uh, the Democrats. And so the first evidence of stolen this elections- This is just not, not true. Diebold was run, owned at the time by, not anymore, by a Republican heavyweight conservative. This is just, this that's, is, I mean, honestly, well, this is just not that's a fact. What uh, that's what I'm saying. What, what you just said is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, sorry, I missed Ken Blackwell was a Republican. He was a Republican secretary of state. So the first example of an election being taken out in an in a electronic way was done by a Republican out of Ohio with an electronic machine. So if if that is the case and it wasn't stopped then and it is going on now, you can look back to the history of where it came from, whether it's true or not uh, about the, the election fraud for in the minds of people because half the country but, believes but, but it what is. is. But what is going on now, Anthony? I mean, I mean, the fact there there aren't, they have every motivation to bring forth whatever fact They've audited, they've hand audited it in Georgia. Sure, sure, what, sure. what is going on? I mean, the fact is you can't just say, well, I'm frustrated that I lost and something's going on and I know it on an internet message board. Th this is not an imaginary destabilization. I, right. I, I worked in Congress. I saw what happened. Yep, I understand. Yeah. I'm seeing it too. No, we we agree on that. The destabilization, I think, is coming from, we've got two sets of, of, of people in groups that, are very clear about what they believe and what they know is to be true. And both sides are partially right. The truth lands in the middle. But there's such a div division in the information that's coming at them. If you read Yahoo News or liberal news and then go read conservative news, the way that it's spun is so backwards of each other that it's almost lending itself to a dystopia. So regardless, what I'm saying is regardless of what is true, each side believes they're right. And so it's just hard to find a middle on these things. But when I hear the Republicans that are in my life complain about these things, I remind them that the first example, it was the first time Ohio had ever had exit polling where it was for uh, Gore and it ended up going for uh, Bush. And so, uh, or yeah, I think it was it was Gore Bush with 2004. So it was the first time it had gone against- Kerry, 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 Kerry Bush. Kerry, that's it. And so- it was the first time election uh, uh, exit polls had gone against what what was actually going on in the election. So I remind them of that and that if they really had a problem with it, that they should have fought it back then. Now is not the time to fight it. it at, at its original inception is when it should have been fought, because you can't you can't have a high moral ground here 
in one place because you don't like the outcome and not have a high moral ground on the other place. And so they get mad at me and I get canceled by both sides, have basically no friends on either side because I try and run down the middle. And so, um, but so, so, we really, we have to be honest about what's happening if we're going to get to answers. I know. Uh -huh. uh, I thought I thought maybe because I think it's really important that we uh, speak clearly here, for, particularly for for students tuning into this. And so, I'm still on the West Coast, so I'm not as animated yet as uh, as my. <laughs> here. Uh, they have they have good coffee on the West Coast. I, I'm, still waking up. I'm still waking up, but I just <laughs> just wanted to know. I just wanted to know that that this is this is why we think the courts are important because at the end of the day, perhaps Anthony's right. I think he's not. That the truth lies in the middle. The truth doesn't always lie in the middle. There is sometimes just a fact of the matter. But the courts have this important role to play at sort of deciding the outcomes here. And insofar as democracy has maintained over the past four years or over the past several months, as uh, the former president and his allies uh, tried to undermine democracy, insofar as it stood, perhaps because of the courts, uh, but we ought not always expect that the courts will be democracy maintaining, right? The gutting of the Voting Rights Act is not democracy maintaining, it's democracy backsliding. It's empowering the states and the kind of federal system that we have, a system of government where the states interact with the national government, right? There are some of my colleagues who argue that the system of federalism is good because it allows states to be laboratories of democracy, right? But we also know that they can be sites of democratic backsliding. And that's where the courts ought to do their best work and they don't always live up to those expectations. But, but let's be clear, let's, let's be clear that we're not a democracy, we're a, a, a republic with- Anthony, a that is, I, I'm sorry, that, that, that's, that's if I were teaching, and I don't want this to be an argumentative exercise. Yeah, sure, of course. Teaching my students, uh, that is that is to to put it to put it plainly uh, uh, a, a distinction without difference. It's that's 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 the kind of thing that people say when they. It doesn't matter whether you call it a republic or a democracy. It's meant to be an inclusive exercise wherein citizens can engage their government. And so this this I don't want to go there because it's a it's as I would say to my students, it's a silly distinction without any meaning. And so that's not where the site of frustration here is. I want to. I think we should probably let Sophia get in with the with the question here. I'm just going to say, kind of on the same ledge, how do individuals, especially since the Supreme Court is seen by many people as kind of this far off thing, engage with the Supreme Court and create change? Is it voting? How how do students or people in general affect the Supreme Court? Uh, Jeremy, why don't you start? So. You know, and, and I think everybody was talking about this before that by design, we protect the Supreme Court from sort of be, being a direct, it's not an elected body. It is, it is where the bodies come together, right? You have a, a president uh, 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 nominate a Supreme Court justice, go through a confirmation process, advice and consent by the U.S. Senate to, to, to put somebody on the Supreme Court as well as uh, other federal judges. And, and that is meant to, to, to and the lifetime, lifetime tenure is, is important in that too. Um, 
but like everything, right? Advocacy matters. Uh, uh, do, you know, what are, is the Supreme Court part of what people are voting on when they vote for a president? Uh, on the conservative Republican side, that has often been true. Conservatives have really prioritized the Supreme Court. It was a major deliverable. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, formerly the majority leader, now the minority leader of the U.S. Senate, has has made that his his primary focus is putting through justices and, and judges, what I talked about earlier with Merrick Garland and, and then putting Amy Coney Barrett on right at the end, um, that is a political priority for the Republican Party. And so, so advocates and, and people, it, it needs to be a political pri priority also on the Democratic side uh, to push elected officials to focus on the courts. They do listen, they read letters, they read emails, they listen to popular thing. It, 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 they, politicians like to be reelected. They, they, you know, there, there's a truth to that. And so I, I think that there has been an imbalance in how, how the sides approach that. Uh, it's good that it's insulated from direct politics. It is wrong, I think, to think of it as a non-political branch because of its influence on politics and, its, and, and how much we have to focus on, on its composition. I, was that professorial enough for the two professors? Probably not, but I'm just- No, it's great. Absolutely you guys great. Can talk. Perhaps, Hakeem, maybe you could quickly speak to this because in about two minutes, we're starting to make forum. So I was going to toss my time over to Anthony if he, because he unmuted himself, if he had something to say on this. I'll just, I'll just note quickly that uh, the courts are, as Jeremy, I think very professorially put it, uh, is, is this branch of government that is not removed from power and politics, right? And so if you want to influence the court, you need to vote in elections. Uh, and uh, I won't knock on Jeremy and his, and his work too much, but I mean, the left has, the left has really left the, the roads wide open uh, for conservatives who are committed to the judiciary in a way that the left is still catching up to. And so uh, if you are a young person who's interested in the courts, uh, you should start finding organizations that meet your values and the like and start advocating for for the kinds of, of judges you want. And I think the left has learned a lot and maybe uh, we've updated a bit. I find myself on the left uh, and maybe we've updated a bit, but it's just a kind of energy that we haven't seen on the left that the right has long had around issues of abortion, LGBT rights, Voting Rights Act, uh, I'm sorry, voting rights. Uh, this is a site, and and then I'll and then I'll set up again. This is a site where you should be paying close attention. Uh, the right and Republicans have learned uh, that a multiracial democracy as is really difficult uh, for the GOP. And if you can't win elections, you try and make it harder for people to vote. And so, if you care about democracy, if you care about the rights of marginalized folks, you have to be advocating. Uh, for the courts to move in a direction that you prefer. Well, what, what, what I'll say about it is we're going to find out when they start talking about abortion because half the country or part of the country, uh, the debate is anyway, uh, abortion up until uh, breath and heartbeat, if no abortion at all. And there's no way possible that they can have a ruling that's going to make the whole country happy. And so my prediction on this is that they're going to send it back to the states, that Roe versus Wade is going to be sort of sidestep, that the states are going to end up having to, to deal, uh, they'll put abortion as a topic in the state level. And we'll see the politics play out probably on that one. And, and if that scares you, people, you should 
focus on the courts and what's about to happen because it's, yeah. it's also contraception. It's also right to control your own your own reproductive choices and health. So I, I agree. That's a, that I think yeah. is what's going to happen, and that's really scary to me. And my my other prediction that goes along with it is I think the conservative states are probably going to start arguing for Tenth Amendment in a way we've never seen before. Thank you so much. We're going to toss the mid forum, uh, Zoe. Good afternoon. My name is Zoe Ellenbogen, and I am a sophomore at Shaker Heights High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. This afternoon, our topic today is about the effects of Justice Coney Barrett's Supreme Court nomination. To refresh, today's panelists are Dr. Hakeem Jefferson, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Jeremy Paris, former Chief Counsel for Nominations and Oversight to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Dr. Anthony Vanderhorst, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminology at Kent State University. Our moderator for today is Youth Forum Council President and Senior at Halfway Brown, Sophia Boyer. We are about to begin the audience question and answer. We welcome and encourage questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, or students. To ask questions, you can either text your question to 330-541-5794 or tweet it to at City Club Youth, and we will ask the panelists your question as time, as time allows. I will hand it back over to Sophia for the first question. Thank you so much. Okay, so our first question, um, comes from a text and it says, can you speak to how the push for police reform can be affected? With police reform being ongoing, how could the courts influence it? Uh, Hakeem, do you maybe want to start with this one? Uh, so I'll leave all of the legal uh, bits and pieces to Jeremy uh, because I like to stay in my lane. Uh, but one of the things that we know uh, uh, in, in thinking about uh, police violence uh, and I do some work thinking about the public's reactions uh, to instances of police violence uh, and, and explaining the racial divide between uh, African-Americans and, and white Americans. And what we observe uh, there is that white and black Americans come to very different views. And so in my work, I, I seek to, to tease out uh, what are the psychological and social factors uh, that lead to those uh, discrepancies and beliefs. And so that's been my work in this area, but I pay close attention uh, to the space of police reform. And uh, one of the things I'd love to hear Jeremy speak a little bit more about is the notion of qualified immunity, uh, which allows uh, police officers uh, in various jurisdictions uh, uh, to get away uh, with really bad acts. It's this, it's this question of of whether a police officer acted in a way that was so abnormal uh, that he should be brought up on criminal charges. It's really hard. It's really hard to convict police officers when they engage in what, to a layperson, to an onlooker like me, looks like violent, unnecessary behavior, in part because of the protection that so many police officers have. And so I'd be very interested in Jeremy's sort of expert thoughts, and sorry to put you on the spot, Jeremy, uh, thinking about the difficulty that we have of bringing, uh, bringing law enforcement officers uh, and holding them to account. And that's where the courts matter uh, in deciding whether or not officers ought to be held to account in this way or not. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to bump and wait and hear what, just because I do have some thoughts on that, but I, I wonder what Anthony says, given your, your, your sort of expertise, uh, Anthony, I'd love, love you to weigh in, and then I'll, I'll see if there's anything left for me to cover. Uh, and I won't pretend to be a legal expert in this field either, but thanks. 
Well, thank, thanks for that. Um, I, I do a lot of talking on this. And where I think that we break down is we have a social contract uh, that we've agreed to, we, which basically in short, I mean, we can talk forever about this, but in short, we're giving up some of our liberties to be able to have safety. And then on top of that, we've got a social control model. And I don't think people understand how a social control model really works and that the police are there for one reason, one reason only to find out if you broke a law and you get referred to the courts and that's where you're supposed to talk. And I think where we've broken down is in, in schools in general, K through 12. You can p pick it apart from rural, urban, suburban, however you want to. We're not teaching kids their rights and, and responsibilities. You have to identify yourself and the reason is so that everybody else can be safe. So you have to prove that you're not a menace or a harm to society at large. And then you can stop talking. You have a fifth amendment right to stop talking, but you have to provide proof that you're not wanted and that you haven't committed a crime. And I don't think we teach that enough. And so when people don't understand the social contract with the social control model, we have a breakdown in society. And the other piece I'll say, and then I'll, I'll stop, is everybody's talking about defund the police right now. But when I ask them how many police are in the United States right now, and I give them numbers over a million and under a million, almost everyone says over a million, but there's 800,000 police officers on the streets. I mean, in the system right now, which means that at any given time, let's call it 900,000, there's 300,000 police that are on the streets at any given time. It's already defunded. So if we start defunding it even further and have less police on the streets, then you have officers responding to calls in a higher ratio than they possibly could. And even more danger could come out of that because there's not enough backup. So I think social control model needs to be understood. The social contract needs to be understood that we have to provide proof that we're, we're safe and, and that society is safe with us in it. And then our fifth amendment right to stop talking. You don't have to talk to the police after you prove who you are. I, I think this is a very interesting Anthony response to a question about uh, silence that uh, that the, the social control model uh, that that expects in part that uh, that the victims of police brutality uh, have come to their fate because they have not uh, disciplined themselves to follow the rules of the game, as it were, the sort of social contract. And uh, to raise the idea that it's necessary to sort of identify oneself. So I suppose as to make it less likely that one will have a negative interaction with law enforcement. Uh, what we know, however, is that uh, many of the folks who come into contact with law enforcement uh, come into contact not because of anything that they've done, but because, as, as was the case in New York with stop and frisk or in cities of color in places like Baltimore, right, uh, or, or in places like Detroit, uh, police officers often use Terry stops and the like to stop people without any right. problem. And so, and so it's not just, and so we can think about police violence that sort of manifests and it's worse outcome of death, uh, but the psychological harm, the, the sort of abuse of one's own sort of humanity, the stopping, the pushing, the, the holding up, the, the inconveniencing that people of color so often face has nothing to do uh, with a breakdown in the social contract on the part of 
of, of people of color who are told from an early age about how to interact with law enforcement. I would put my expertise as not as a, as a political scientist, but as a black man who grew up in a home where my parents taught me how to engage with the police. Uh, when I have had negative interactions, and unfortunately only a couple of times, it's not been because I didn't discipline myself. It's because we've got a system of policing that needs full reimagining uh, that makes these sorts of interactions. Yeah, and and Hakeem, I, I, I just wanted to, to jump in to say, yeah, I mean, the, the talk you had to have with your parents is not the talk I had to have with my parents that I have with my kids, right? I mean, that 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 fact of systemic racism and, and, and implicit bias, if not explicit bias, really impacts because because Anthony, what what you said is true to a certain level. Except if 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 my interaction as a white man is different from Hakeem's as a black man with the police, how is that social contract right? How is it just? How does yeah. it work? I'm not I, arguing that. Yeah, no, I, I I'm I'm sure you're not. I'm just saying because yeah. I think I think there's the idea frame, and then there's the sort of reality we live in, and how to yeah. how to how to how to put those more in accord. We're having a moment of reckoning that's long overdue. And it's messy and it's hard and it's difficult. And I, I think one of the things I was heartened by last summer, watching the protests after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, was I, that, that, that most people and most white people recognize this isn't a bad apple problem. This is a systemic problem that needs a solution. And that's a start to finding one. I think there is support for criminal justice reform on both sides of the aisle, different kinds of solutions, different, different work to be done. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the the role that courts play to go back to, I think the the initial question and Hakeem, you teed it up with qualified immunity is one thing that we saw during the the, the Obama era was the use of consent decrees, judge judges working with police departments and communities to come to consent decrees for, and we had one here in Cleveland, right, for how to address community police interaction and violence. And I, I actually think these are, are a, it can be a very successful model. They're an important model. And the Trump administration did away with them. So one of the things I look to is I expect the resumption by the, this Justice Department uh, of using consent decrees to sort of work, to try to try to create. And I think what we've seen is what, what happens in the absence of those. You don't have dialogue. You don't have. So that's the other thing is you mentioned qualified immunity. And this is a really important idea for how the courts interact with the political system. Qualified immunity is a judge created doctrine that protects public officials and particularly police officers from liability for, for bad acts. Now there's an important idea behind it, which is you don't want police officers in moments where they are exposed to risk to have to think, can I do it? Can't I do this? Because uh, uh, they, they have their lives are at risk or they have a, an important function. On the other hand, shielding them for, for, for immunity for bad acts, the sort of blind creates a, a, this, this lack of accountability that leads to problems of culture within police departments, also problems of trust in communities. I think there's got to be a coming together. I think it starts with examining and limiting the doctrine of qualified immunity. That's something that's part of criminal justice reform efforts. Uh, this Supreme Court will not be friendly to it, uh, but it is something that, that we need to look at. One last note before we get to the next question, I just wanted to shout out Zoe Ellenbogen and Shaker Heights High School. I am a Shaker Heights High School grad, class of a long time ago, 1993. Uh, so much of my career and my value system was created out of going through Lomond School and Shaker Middle School and Shaker Heights High School. No offense to Hathaway Brown and, and Hawken and, and U.S., but uh, I really value everything about Shaker. We moved back to Shaker to raise my kids in this system. So I, I, I just wanted to say, yay, Shaker Heights, and, uh, and thanks for, for having me here. 
Well, lovely. Okay, so the next question comes from Twitter, and it says, how serious are Biden and the Democrats in the House and Senate about expanding the court, and is it possible that the poll left their still in place? Uh, Jeremy, why don't you speak to this first? Can I, can I ask a question to Jeremy about this? Because I read on a blog somewhere that if they go through this uh, and they try and do this, then it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to rule on whether this is allowed to happen. Is that is that the case? Well, yeah, I mean, this, this is a great, what a great thought, thought bubble and thought process, right, about, about uh, a court expansion and court reform. And one of the things that advocates for, and there are a number of varieties of court reform that people are talking about. And I, I want to address that, but first to start at the, the opening idea, which is uh, if a court system that, I mean, this is the idea that reformers have, which is uh, uh, senators representing a minority of Americans, a president elected by a minority of Americans has put a supermajority on the Supreme Court. It simply does not reflect the political will of most Americans. Uh, and so reform is necessary to sort of bring it back in alignment with where the core of the country is for it to be sort of fair and unbiased. That's the idea of reformers, right? I, I support a lot of those ideas, I'll be candid, but that's sort of the idea behind it. Um, and it depends on the flavor of reform. Court expansion, right? Expanding the number of Supreme Court. The number on the Supreme Court is, is, is not set in the Constitution. Congress has expanded it and retracted it a number of times. So, so there really isn't any constitutional argument against passing a law that expands by one, two, three, four, any number, the, the justices on the Supreme Court. Um, I think there's a problem with the nomenclature of court packing that gets tossed around. I actually think what, it, what, what the Republicans have done is pack the courts with ideologues over the last number of years, the, the Garland stolen seat, uh, uh, putting Amy Coney Barrett on during an election. I think that, that, that court expansion would be an answer to court packing, not, not court packing itself. Uh, but, but your question, Anthony, is uh, would the court somehow rule those nominations illegitimate? They might. That'd be a harder one for them to stand on. The other flavors of court reform, like term limits for justices, Right, this, the, the Constitution says justice to, to, to serve for in times of good behavior, they can be impeached and removed. It doesn't provide for other limitations on their service at time. This was at a time when people didn't live to 80 and 90, right? We, we've got justice on the court for 30, 40 years. That's right. You know, term limits might be in order. Uh, it would sort of lower the temperature around nominations. Uh, uh, that's the argument of reformers. Great point. The Supreme Court could say, hey, listen, whatever your policy thing is, the, 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 the Constitution doesn't give you the right to do it. With court expansion, there is no argument that, that, that Congress couldn't do it. So I think that's that's where, where I think when, when sort of people try to game out, how would this survive a hostile Supreme Court? Some flavors survive, others others I think I think don't. Uh, uh, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be a lot of fights for advocacy. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, 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 Anthony, uh, by, Joe, President Biden during the campaign said, look, I'm, I'm gonna appoint a commission to study this. There's news just, just Yesterday, I think that that commission is getting up and running. They're going to study it for six months and then sort of come out with recommendations. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see where the politics lie after that. I, I'm sure you guys have thoughts, but that's sort of the, the roadmap on, on on reform. And great question, Anthony. You should you should have gone to the audience to ask that, but great question. Yeah, it was just interesting when I saw it. You know, it, when I was in college, and you know, in, in early years of college. Uh, uh, undergraduate degree. I, I never understood how, especially after the uh, 2000 Bush Gore, how nine people could have a decision for the entire country. So I, back then I was always in favor of, you know, maybe 20 people on the court or whatever number, but nine just seems like a lot to be able to change the face of the country. It just seems too little. I I, I, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of worry about that. I think the Bush v. Gore election, which 
it's funny because it's uh, such reality for a lot of us, but I think for some of the students on here, it seems like ancient history is 20 years ago. This election, the Biden-Trump election, was not particularly close. It was, it was 7 million votes nationally. It was decided in five states. The 2000 election was decided by one state, Florida, by 537 votes. Exactly. And the Supreme Court actually put a stop to the counting of votes. And, and, and yet you then had a peaceful transition of power. Al Gore, who had just lost the election, presided over the certification uh, of the votes that, that cost him the election as opposed to a violent insurrection. I think that calmed the waters. And so you didn't have that same urgency around how do we address this really counter-democratic thing that just happened. Part of the problem there is the machineries of our election counting is not so fine-tuned to 900 votes here or there out of 150 million cast. It was fewer than 120 million in that election, probably. Really hard to get it exactly right. But I agree. I think for, for the court, I am more concerned with the Supreme Court's roles at setting the rules, not just deciding election after it, but what they've done in terms of democracy table setting. I think that's where the frustration of reformers comes in. I think it should be expanded. Uh, uh, and we should find ways to, to sort of create less of a high stakes poker where you have these political things placed around, you know, jamming a, a nominee through right before the election. Well, thank you so much. The next question is a very popular question. It's been sent many times. Um, can you speak to healthcare? Biden wants to expand it, and it's been an issue in the courts from its inception. How do you see it being addressed by the courts? And I just like to tag onto that with the current pandemic. Does that change anything? Does it remain the same? Um, Anthony, do you want to start or Hakeem? Uh, I, I'll just jump in uh, really quickly here. I I was heartened by uh, by the Supreme Court's uh, uh, thinking in the ACA case, the most recent case. I mean, uh, as I think Anthony mentioned earlier, we won't get into questions of severability and the like here. But even conservative justices on the court uh, thought this suit was kind of crazy. Like, you know, would would Congress really intend uh, that the whole law goes away because you can't uh, treat it as a tax? Probably not, right? The folks who pass the law want the law to stand. So I was heartened by that. Uh, but I, I have no trust that if a more sophisticated uh, case came before uh, this conservative bench, uh, that it would not find a way. I mean, the Chief Justice, as many on the call might remember, surprised uh, many folks when he found a clever way to help maintain uh, the ACA when uh, when opponents uh, brought it to the courts initially, uh, saying that the individual mandate uh, fell under Congress's taxing power and the like. And so you know, the court surprises sometimes, uh, but I'm not so confident uh, that this uh, conservative court, uh, when given an opportunity with a smarter case uh, than the most recent case, wouldn't find a way uh, to destabilize the Affordable Care Act. I'll mention too, that we have not seen that this court has been all that sensitive to the fact that we are in the midst of a pandemic, right? We saw this around voting, questions of voting, and the likes that came before the court. Uh, and we saw it in, in federal courts across the country uh, not being terribly sensitive to this, uh, in part because they wanted to maintain their politics. And so, I don't know, I'm not uh, terribly optimistic here, but I am heartened uh, by the fact that the Chief Justice has shown his hand before, uh, and the most recent case uh, was so crazy that it didn't stand a chance. So uh, perhaps there's room for optimism, but I don't know. 
I'd like to add a, an argument to this that I've never heard anybody make before, but I started thinking on my own. Uh -oh. So if we go to a single user system, a lot of unions have made a lot of headway in getting really nice insurance as part of their package and their pay, in part because when you work for government or you work for nonprofits, you get lesser pay. And so part of the deal is to get a nice package in, in healthcare to take care of you and your family. And I benefit from that and, I, and, I'm, and I'm happy for it. If it goes to single payer, what's going to happen? Are they going to have a multi-tiered system where you can actually buy into something beyond, uh, you know, like private insurance? Or are people who argued for union rights and, and union collective bargaining uh, agreements around healthcare, does that go away and now we've taken a pay cut? I don't think anybody's addressed this piece to it. And, and it's something that needs to be in the discussion because there are a lot of union workers out there who have negotiated these uh, these benefits. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's an interesting idea because the you know the, you often see the politics around this is so so odd. You see, like, keep government off my Medicare, which is mm -hmm. I mean, Medicare right. is a government program, right? I mean, people don't understand the the, the relationship of these things. I, I I think first of all, the 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 Supreme Court case that that challenge, though it's likely not to stand, is still pending, right? There was an oral argument; it, the decision hasn't been made. This is you know, and John Roberts is very conservative, but also very focused on the court's legitimacy and staying out of political harm. So some people read his decision not to strike down, you know, to, 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 to uphold the individual mandate, not to strike down the, the Affordable Care Act as political. I actually think if you read his papers, I was the, the lawyer who had to read them during his nomination. He really believes in the spending clause. He really doesn't believe in the commerce clause. Uh, and and he really, his, his opinion dramatically narrowed the sort of Congress's ability to, to use the Commerce Clause to, to legislate uh, while, while keeping the law alive. I am not convinced that, that the, the addition, new additions of the court are going to welcome the Affordable Care Act. The one thing that has changed most of all, and I don't know that it's the pandemic, Sophia, which is a great add-on to the question, but I, I think the Affordable Care Act has become much more popular than it did when it was passed, partly because the benefits of it have, have come in, its expansion of health care, the, the, the need for it, you know, the fight now uh, among sort of certainly progressives, but with this administration is to expand healthcare, but how and how much, uh, uh, how much is available politically, you know, in a very narrowly divided Congress, how much can they do by executive order? Um, the argument currently before the Supreme Court, I agree, Hakeem, is, is so laughably terrible and bad. Uh, and, and there's a lot of procedural ways that they can kind of bounce it uh, and and, it, and it's likely that Congress or, or the administration is going to act in ways that will harden it anyway against the challenge in some technical ways between now and when the court, say, decides in March or April. Uh, I don't expect the Supreme Court, even this court, to, to, to strike it down. Partly, I think they're on to other things that they care about more. The, the political hit that they would take, this is where advocacy does matter. Uh, uh, I think they're, I think, you know, and, and uh, Anthony, you alluded to this earlier, one of the, we have not talked about this at all. One of the big trend lines in what the court is doing is under the, the, the sort of rubric of, of religious liberty, expanding exceptions to laws like anti-discrimination laws of general applicability, sort of anti-LGBTQ, uh, uh, anti-discrimination laws against LGBTQ people sort of uh, uh, using sort of religious liberty exceptions to grow it. You can say the same thing in terms of the laws that provide access to contraception uh, to birth control, right? And so I think that's one of the things that I look at is, is where this court and these the conservatives who have the majority of court want to go, it's in that direction. I don't know that the Affordable Care Act, I think they'll probably try to sidestep it. It's not, not their fight. Um, 
you know, that's a political take, which people are really uncomfortable with. I'm certainly on the left, they're uncomfortable with the idea that these justices are political. They are, and we have to contend with it. So I don't know, Anthony, I don't know if that's what you meant when you sort of brought up the religious liberty. I think it's, I think it's the biggest thing happening on the court right now, as you said, in terms of that's, that's where the exactly, law is going. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I meant is, is these carve outs. Um, I'd like to add one more thing about what, what they're going to do with uh, the conversation of gun control. One of the things that people in society, when I talk, really don't seem to know, and this stems back to 1856, uh, and there's all kinds of Supreme Court rulings on this, is that if when we talk about police reform, there's a piece in there that nobody really addresses called no affirmative duty to respond. The police have no duty to respond on a 911 call, and I take my students through a, a litany of arguments that go on, including 2012. A mother had uh, a protection order in Castle Rock, Colorado against her uh, her ex-husband. He went and picked him up and took him to a, a um, you know, a, a fair. She had the protection order from about five o'clock in the afternoon until about one o'clock in the morning. She's calling the cops saying, come get my, I need my daughter's back. He's dangerous. They said, no, we don't have a protection order uh, re requirement to, to show up. Seven o'clock in the morning, I'll cut the story short. Seven o'clock in the morning, he goes into Castle Rock, Colorado Police Department, does suicide by cop. The three daughters are dead in the back of the truck. So she sued, the mother sued, Gonzalez is her name, sued the uh, Castle Rock Police Department, went to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court of the United States said, you have no special relationship. There is no affirmative duty for the uh, police to respond to your protection order. And I think what happened in what we've seen play out uh, with the riots and everything, people are starting to realize the cops can just stand there and do nothing. Yeah, they can. They have no affirmative duty to actually respond. And uh, there's tons of case law on this. And I think this is one of the reasons and one of the things that I caution about, we have a lot of people buying guns. And if the concern is people shooting somebody in the house because suicides and murders are usually the way that these gun crimes go on, and, and gun violence goes on, it's not usually defending people, that we're increasing that by uh, by people going out and buying guns and not getting trained on these things. So the Supreme Court has, has had a lot of say on this. I don't know that they're going to hear another case. They haven't been willing to on gun control. Um, a couple of them have come up. Uh, AOC happened to say that guns are not allowed in Washington, D.C., and she said, in case you don't know, but the case is that they are allowed. You just have to have a license. And so, you know, we get all this misinformation about what goes on, but if we're going to talk about police reform, that piece has to be part of the discussion, because if the police don't have to show up, then how do you defend yourself if you've got somebody who's violent coming at you or you have a protection order? Um, so I think that, you know, that part of the conversation gets gets missed a lot of times. We'll see what the Supreme Court does with it. Yeah. Thank you so much. One quick question. Um, maybe Hakeem could take this one. What are current cases before the Supreme Court um, that we should be paying attention to and who could have, uh, which one could have the most local impact or impact in general? I mean, that's a, that's a question for Jeremy. I, I think I, I'm most eager to hear uh, and see who joins uh, and the decision and the Affordable Care Act case. I think it gives us a good signal uh, as to how far right uh, some of the members of the court are willing to go. Issues that I'm eager to see uh, for the court, uh, I am eager to see how the court uh, decides cases that have carve outs for 
LGBT rights on the RIFRA and religious freedom laws. I think those are interesting. And uh, I'm interested to see how the court uh, decides cases that come before it that pertain to questions of affirmative action, uh, which has been on its deathbed before the court uh, for some time. So those are the issues that I think are interesting uh, to watch. And given that this might be the last word I say, uh, I think that uh, questions of democracy that come before the court that deal with voting uh, rights and the like are ones that we should all uh, attend to. Yeah, I, I just one last word. I think we're going to see a lot of aggressive challenges from con, you know conservative state attorney general and and, and advocates. Sure. They feel like they forum shop. They've got a court. They've got a six three supermajority in the court. They control a lot of the lower level circuit courts right now. So I think you can see really aggressive challenges across a whole variety of issues. Uh, 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 the ones that Hakeem named gun cases, like Anthony was talking about, qualified immunity, racial justice. You're going to see democracy shaping cases. This is going to be a tough couple terms for progressives to watch because a lot of stuff is going to be at risk. So stay attention, pay attention, and make this part of like your civic involvement. Thanks for having me today. Sorry to go long. And Thank for me, it's know. abortion. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, I believe it's going to end up going back to states' rights, and I think Tenth Amendment issues are going to start being on the rise. And thank, thank you. you for so much. We're going to uh, push it to Kennedy. Thank you all for being on this panel. It was thank nice to be on the panel with you all. Good afternoon. My name is Kennedy Smith, a senior at Hawkins School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today, we have enjoyed a Youth Forum panel discussing the legal and socioeconomic implications of decisions made by the highest court of the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, in light of Justice Conan Barrett's Supreme Court nomination. Joining us today were Dr. Hakeem Jefferson, Assistant Professor of Political Science and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Comparative Studies of Race and Ethnicity at the Stanford Center for American Democracy and Stanford University. He's also a contributor to 538, a data journalism organization. We also had Jeremy Parrott, the former Chief Counsel for Nominations and Oversight for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Dr. Anthony Vanderhorst, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminology at Kent State University. Our moderator is Youth Forum Council President and Halfway Brown Senior, Sophia Boyer. City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T with additional support from the Char and Chuck Fowler Foundation, the Doris C. Mikowski Trust, and the William N. Weiss Foundation. We are grateful for their support. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on their website at cityclub.org. You can join them in supporting that work when you make a donation online or become a member at cityclub.org. Join us on February 18th for the next youth forum focused on internet insecurities. Thank you for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>